0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. I'm your host, Jim Ambuski. Today I sit down with Dr. Mark Boonshoff of Norwich University in Vermont. Dr. Boonshoff is wrapping up his tenure as a research fellow at the Washington Library, and he joins us today to discuss education in the early republic. As a friendly reminder, there is still time to get your tickets for the upcoming Harpsichord Symposium on August 2nd and 3rd. Join an international roster of performers and historians as they explore and revive the music of Mount Vernon in Washington's era. More information about this event can be found on the website for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Mark, I suppose I'm obliged to begin the interview by asking you a very serious question. If I say O-H, will you say? I am. Terrific. Good man. Um, you are, in fact, a proud graduate of the Ohio State University, home of the best damn band in the land. And, and I want to uh, start off our conversation today by talking about your journey to OSU and, and really what inspired you to become a
1: historian? It's a great and hard question. Um, So the glib answer is I got an A+++. I think that's four pluses on a uh, paper on Thomas Jefferson in the fourth grade. Well done. And so, you know, stick with what you're good at, right? (laughs) Uh, Although I think that actually that was symptomatic of me being kind of interested in it. I'm not that good of a student. Um, And so throughout kind of high school, I think I was drawn to the early American period in Mm -hmm. ways that I can't quite explain. I think it probably has something to do with... Um, not being on the interest in science fiction, but finding myths kind of intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in high school, I had really good teachers that that I was a pretty argumentative and irreverent kid. And they, you know, history class, you could argue and you could question received wisdom and think, you know, how could a group of people who said all men are created equal, you know, create a slave society? And those were questions that teachers were asking um, which was really inspiring and interesting um, and I was already kind of engaged I think in that period I, I for like um, what do you call it? independent reading I read at, at one point in high school Ben Franklin's autobiography oh, Wow! and another point I read like one of the David McCullough books it was just sort of like it was there mm-hmm. um, so there's this kind of clash of things there that like I was kind of interested in the mythology but also like to question things and I think this was the heyday of Founders Chic, as it were. You know, sort of a lot of the Founders biographies were everywhere. And I quickly got bored of them.
0: This is like the early 2000s. Yeah, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So Joe Ellis.
1: And, Joe and Ellis and things like that. So I was I was like voluntarily reading these things. It's like a 17, 18, 19-year-old. But quickly got kind of bored of just mm-hmm. reading Founders biographies. I wanted to know more. I wanted to think more uh, about the bigger picture. And started to realize that there was a kind of whole other conversation happening about... Um, causes of the American Revolution in a big picture, what the effects of the American Revolution were, why the Constitution looks the way that it does, these kind of things that um, were not just kind of uh, people-focused. And I I found myself drawn to that. Um, And so by the time I was like 19... I was reading, you know, monographs during my lunch breaks. At uh, when I worked at a law firm over the summers, I was reading. The first one I remember was "Under the Cope of Heaven," which is this great 1980s book about colonial religion. And like, Mm who? I don't know why I was doing that. But so I think I, I just sort of gradually fell into this kind of like wanting to know more, wanting to know more, realizing that the way to figure that out is to dive really deep and. you can't really dive deeper than doing it as a profession. <laughs> well,
0: that's true. I mean, and you know, you had mentioned the fact that early on you had great teachers. Do you remember one in particular that really motivated and and um, you know, really encouraged your love of history and your love of, of questioning? Sort of the grand narratives and and these um, the I guess the founder chic as you uh, put it.
1: Yeah, two high school teachers. One, uh, her name was Claire Coco. Uh, no idea where she is nowadays, but maybe she'll hear this. Um, who I think I had for ninth and tenth grade world history, mm-hmm. um, and then I had uh, later a uh, this guy named Craig Thurtell, who was actually an Eric Foner graduate student, and uh, wow. ended up working, getting a job teaching public high school, um, I think while he was finishing his dissertation at Columbia, and, and he, was in, he had been in the job so long that at some point he was just kind of like, well, I'm just going to keep teaching. And he was a great teacher. I took a class on um, U.S. after 1945 with him that was a lot about kind of you know, American imperial adventures in, in Latin America and, and things like this that I just hadn't thought much about, mm-hmm. and it was just kind of an interesting um, he was really kind of inspiring and fun, very funny guy. In his understated way, so I think those were those were two people really early on.
0: And you know, hopefully, they do hear this because I'm sure they would appreciate. It's always nice to hear from former students when in those moments when uh, you learn that they, that you've made a difference in their lives in some small way, and, and certainly it seems like they have here. Uh, how did you um, approach your graduate studies at Ohio State? What did you spend some time sort of thinking about? a topic to work
1: on or did you did you come in right away with a concrete idea? <laughs> I remember the first day of graduate school, like the first day I sat down in the seminar and we ran around, around the table um, and it was, I was, you know, my first day and there was people in there, second or third year graduate students. Mm-hmm. And so I was the last person to go just the way I went around the table. And everybody said, like, what they were working on for seminar papers or even, you know, they were developing dissertation proposals. And it got to me, and I was like, I don't know why I'm here. (laughs) Um, And it was just like this, you know, graduate students often talk about imposter syndrome, like you don't belong there. And I like, day one, there it was. But, no, I knew I was interested in kind of um, political history of the early republic. um, And... That was about it. I had written an undergraduate thesis about anti-federalists and ended up at Ohio State and uh, kind of figured it out from there. But I didn't come in really knowing um, a specific topic. I was Mm -hmm. just kind of, you know, time period, some themes I was kind of interested in. And, you know, it was nice to have the
0: chance to kind of feel it out. I I think imposter syndrome is something that is, you know, everyone experiences at some point in their career and still do. I mean, totally. I feel very fortunate to be in this job, but sometimes I think, what am I doing here? You know, how did this happen? Um, and, I, and you know, I, I think, you know, for, for graduate students who might be listening to this podcast, it's okay to feel that way. You know, exactly. we, we have all gone through it, and we still do go through it. Uh, but you eventually settled on a topic, and that topic was education. And I, I, I want to uh, unpack your book a little bit, you know, not give away the whole thing, because we want people to buy it eventually uh, when it comes out. But you... Um, kind of begin the summary of your book with a very lovely quote from Noah Webster uh, who is the dictionary father of us all and, and he as you say bemoaned that the United States was or that the constitutions of the United States are republican the laws of education are monarchical so what did it mean to live in a
1: republic where the laws of education were monarchical so you have to kind of understand the assumptions that go into that, that quotation. And that is to say that one of the things that made a republic different from a monarchy was that, right, citizens were not subjects. Citizens governed themselves, and so therefore they needed to be educated. And so there's this kind of current in in the writings of the founder and founding generation about the importance of education to this republican experiment that without a suitable education system to create citizens who can govern themselves the whole thing's liable to fall apart and so you see things like state constitutions calling for public schools you saw the northwest ordinance Jim's from, from Ohio so right uh, the northwest ordinance um brackets off parts parcels of land to fund education in the Northwest Territory. Things like this um, seemed, like, absolutely essential to the point that you might say that, like, without that kind of education, the whole thing was just inevitably going to fail. Mm-hmm. And so what the Webster quote captures, though, is that, for the most part, m- this... Uh, rhetoric doesn't translate into policy. Mm. And so in, in practice, what you find in the early years of the republic is that people are talking a, lot, a good game about the importance of, you know, widespread access to knowledge sufficient to make republican citizens, but in reality are educating people in really similar ways to how they had before, which is to say they're educating people who can afford to go to school and, and not doing all that much else. Um, for the rest of society and so if you believe that you can't have a republic without widespread education it seems really problematic that people are are recognizing that well we're actually doing that right now we've created a republic and we haven't uh, created the education system that can sustain it and so I kind of wanted to know why that was, why they were building the kinds of schools they were building and not building the kinds of mm-hmm. schools that seemed to be what everybody and their mother was calling for. So it's,
0: there's like a contradiction in terms yeah. there. We are a Republican entity, but the only uh, institutions capable of training our future leaders are these elite institutions. And that is... In Jefferson's mind, that would not fulfill his idea of a yeoman republic, where you know every man takes control of his own destiny in and, and his own government. And so, you you point out that the Federalists um, are the, the the individuals who are sort of enamored with European styles of education, and that they really champion these academies. And so, what is a An academy in this context, what's a a good working definition for us?
1: Academy, uh, the good working definition would be a privately run state sanctioned, usually through a charter chartered corporation, um, secondary school. Um, So just to give you an idea, some of these still exist, the ones Mm -hmm. that were founded. So Phillips Andover, Phillips Exeter, really famous boarding schools um, Mm -hmm. nowadays, those are, you know, date to 1780, 1781. Um, So that's a pretty basic kind of working definition of what they were. And they offered a kind of, you know, the classics, um, which would prepare you for more classics in college. Um, they also offered ornamental education, what it was called at the time, but things like um, dancing, music, mm-hmm. um, French, modern languages, things like that, that, you know, are um, important for, you know, men of the world, mm-hmm. as it were. So they're
0: trying to create not only intelligent leaders, but also leaders who have or who are well-rounded gentlemen, who have social graces, who can move with ease in certain social settings and through uh, uh, political gatherings and whatnot. Um, how does that contrast to uh, what eventually becomes sort of the Jeffersonian model for the, you know, he, he seventeen uh, late 1770s, off, authors the, the Bill for the General Diffusion of Knowledge in Virginia, and he is really adamant about creating um, Primary schools and eventually the University of Virginia as a means to train future leaders, leaders not only of Virginia but of the Republic at large. And how how are those two in conflict with each other?
1: Yeah, so there's there's two things in that in the shift from kind of federalist education policy to what comes later. One is um, that federalists in funding and supporting academies are are throwing a lot of resources, actually public resources and private resources, towards Shaping an assumed elite, right? People who already can afford to go to these schools and trying to to shape them in their own image and in a way that they, they like. So part of the critique of these is of academies is is on the one hand who they educate, and then the other is how. So the who is well, how is that? How is educating an assumed elite not just you know uh, making an aristocracy like look. Like an aristocracy. Right. Um, and then the, the other side of that is what you teach them um, and there's, you know, a question about whether, you know, what is the utility of, why should political leaders know Latin in a republic? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's a, that's a fundamental question. Um, and so what you get in the, in the shift to sort of Jefferson's 1779 plan as a, as a good model, is it's an effort to um, not just educate assumed leaders but to find people who actually have talent and are not just born into uh, privilege and wealth. Um, And so that's why you need a – Jefferson would say you need a firm base of public schools Mm -hmm. that basically teach everyone the rudiments because then you can find who excel – those who excel at that and and sort of elevate them up, usually through free um, tax-supported scholarships, essentially. Um, And then – Oh, go ahead. So it's about merit as opposed to – you know, birth. Yeah, and that's that's sort of what the Jeffersonian model is. But then there are those who think that even that is um, quite not really, uh, it doesn't really make sense that, that part of what a republic is is a representative government, And right? And right, so to right. be representative, again, it's, it doesn't necessarily follow that your representatives should be um, educated in a different way from their constituents mm-hmm. or have necessarily more education. Right. Like, So they're not anti-intellectual. They wouldn't say... Uh, some of these um, Republicans who would make this argument. They wouldn't say that, you know, lawyers shouldn't be well educated. Well, actually, they might say that they don't love lawyers, but that people shouldn't be able to follow their their <laughs> kind of um, educational whims and learn what they want to mm-hmm. learn. But that it doesn't necessarily follow that more advanced schooling equals better capacity to to represent your constituents. And so, therefore, what you really need is public schools at a at a at the ground level that teach. Um, you know the three R's, but also like history and and the kinds of things you need to know to be a good citizen, but sufficient enough that you could also then represent your fellow citizens, right? If, if you're just kind of a representative stand-up guy who you know went through the the regular old public schools that that people are proposing, that you should be able to then stand for office and do it really capably. Mm-hmm. And you
0: you position this debate as kind of a proxy war between the Federalists and the Republicans for their overall vision. Of the Republic is that an accurate sort of suggest <clears throat> suggestion? Excuse me.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think um, not to get too into the historiographical weeds, but there's this. Oh, oh. There's the, there's, there's the that bad word, word. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's you know there's like a couple ways to think about the problem of the early republic. One of them is you know the, the relative uh, equality mm-hmm. in kind of the political system, and then another one is us thinking big picture about the development of institutions um, and the government itself uh, in a long arc. That is maybe would maybe say that those questions of equality are kind of. To the side mm-hmm. that they're not as important as understanding, like how American gained, America, the United States gained, you know, the governing capacity to tax people, to wage war, to secure independence, mm-hmm. and these kind of things. But I think you know, really, what you see here is is they're fighting this fight over um, you know, equality through government institutions, mm-hmm. and so it's part and parcel with that um, that. Uh, bigger that uh, that other question, so it's a way to kind of draw the two together. And so, yes, it is what you say. I think a kind of proxy war about this, but it's the policy arena through which they fight this kind of battle over political culture, which otherwise exists in kind of rhetoric newspapers. Um, but you can kind of actually shape the society through through schools, through institutions. Well,
0: you mentioned newspapers there, and, and one of the things I'm really uh, really interested about in your project is. You you make use of twenty five archives and libraries across nine states. So, what kind of sources are you using to reconstruct
1: and tell this story? There's a, uh, so, the archival stuff is is a lot of school records. Um, they're they're boring. They're really really <laughs> they're really dreadfully boring. Like we formed a board of trustees today, and like so and so is elected the treasurer, and then like he didn't show up to two meetings, so we needed another treasurer, and like so on and so on and so forth. But you can figure out who the people are. That are right investing in different kinds of schools and, and um, sometimes why in those those mm-hmm. um, in those records. So that's a lot of the archival stuff. It's just this really nitty gritty kind of boring um, reconstruction of the who and the the what and the cost mm-hmm. of all of this. The newspapers is uh, helps me get at the stuff that at get at the schools and the debates that are not in archives. So you know I found something like 175 academies built in the United States before 1800 probably found the records of 20 but right but if you go into the newspapers you can start to um, find notices for board of boards of trustee meetings advertisements I made a lot of use Mm -hmm. of advertisements there's just you know in every newspaper there's four of these basically every issue Um, so the newspapers help you fill that in and then also get the 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 political debates about that the schools themselves sort of engender wow
0: and and were were these uh, sources that you consulted in a, in a concentration in a particular geographic region of the country, or how far a field did you go? Because I think
1: your story ends as you as you say, eighteen thirty ish. Eighteen thirty ish. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the dissertation was just the mid Atlantic mm-hmm. and kind of the upper South, so sort of New York. I mean, really the New York City area, south to maybe North Carolina. Um, and then for the for the book, part of what I tried to do was broaden it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I did some work in New England um, and uh, and some newspaper kind of stuff in in the deeper south and then when um, the revision process took me into the 1820s I ended up looking even a little bit in the West and Kentucky and um, and places like that Tennessee to a smaller extent so it ended up being almost national but not really um, it, it's it's more like uh, The states that were there by, say, 1795, um, because it's kind of hard to trace change over time in education in, you know, a place like uh, that is, uh, you know, Indiana, for example. It was created as a state in 1816, I think. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, um, And so I think that the story I'm telling probably has implications for what goes on there, Mm -hmm. but really like the, 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 um, the empirical work was the first 14 or 15
0: states. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, as you're charting the course of the development of American education and this contest between Federalists and Republicans, you're also sort of charting state-making in a lot of ways as well. Um, what, What was something that particularly surprised you over the course of your research? I guess what surprised me
1: was the vitriol with which some of these academies were met, many of the academies were met, and yet how kind of ineffectual that critique was for a really long time so there's a uh this is not going to air before i give my talk right um, <laughs> it doesn't matter i'm going to give something away uh, <laughs> there's this great essay it's 1784 right after Phillips andover is created in massachusetts and another early massachusetts academy is created um there's an essay in a boston magazine that basically says like if we keep doing this the government will be subverted from a republic to an aristocracy like full stop oh, right wow. um like and people keep making those arguments, yeah. right? And it's 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 always that overwrought and, like, you know, existential dread. And they just keep doing this. Year after year, they keep <laughs> making these arguments. And it's like, it keeps, academies keep getting built apace. And I hadn't really read much about that um, debate. I mean, to a certain extent, a lot of the rhetoric at this time, mm-hmm. if anyone who's studied newspaper debates of anything in this period, no, it, it's overheated. But, right, yeah. but this was still just like, uh, the idea that, that um, the questions of which schools got, you know, the very limited amounts of funding that were, gonna, that were available would lead to that kind of rhetoric was really just sort of bizarre at mm-hmm. first, and then it kind of gave me some, you know, encouragement that I was probably following up something You were on the right track. There. Yeah, the, if they thought this strongly about it, then there's probably something there.
0: Well, as you, as you alluded to at the beginning, you know, these debates— that they're having in the early republic really never go away, and they're still with us. And so I'm wondering, you know, how, you know, how your work in the early republic has helped shape your thinking
1: about our modern day education system. Another really, really good question. Um, so I think the the most basic way is that they, they being the founding generation and beyond, I think thought. Um, uh, in more interesting ways about education than than we do. I mean, they were, they took so for granted that like the kind of education system you design mm-hmm. is tantamount to the kind of political system you're designing, right? So that there's an absolutely integral relationship between that. Um, whereas now, I think we talk a lot about, like, effectiveness at meeting arbitrary standardized testing benchmarks mm-hmm. that often have very little to do with um, civic capacity, right? It's about... You know, college and career readiness or something like that. So there's just this more capacious way of thinking about education that um, is there to this day. I mean, if you think about um, people often talk about education as a civil rights issue. And that right, 100% right, reflects right. an idea that has something to do with citizenship. And yet the driving force in debates are about effectiveness of schools and, and, um, and things that that lose the big picture mm-hmm. in some cases. And then there's the question of what kinds of institutions um you build and there's a just a really strong argument for the in this in the period I'm writing about for the need for um, what we think of as public schools what they would probably call common schools and and that is public publicly funded publicly supported um, almost universal uh, this period we're talking about universal for white men um, common to everyone's schools and that if you divide the, uh, the education system and that there are, the haves can go to academies um, and they can create them through um, y- sort of using the state legislatures to give them charters to create these schools mm-hmm. and then everybody else is left in a different system that you've created a problem um, because people are not in, that's a common institution that is no longer common, yeah. right? Uh, and so there's a there's a, uh, a through line here to questions about about nowadays which is sort of like you know there, there are people like local control of education mm-hmm. except local control can often lead to a, a lack of of common you know purpose in schools right there are people in certain in in one school that's a quote unquote good school and then you leave other people in um, bad schools again in quotes um, and this often has to do with kind of the structure of the institutions and how they're being Uh, organized. The really uh, scary parallel might be that, you know, what I'm talking about are chartered schools in opposition to public schools. And we are kind of having a debate now about the purpose of charter schools Mm -hmm. um, as they relate to public schools. Are they public schools? Uh, Do they help the public system? Are they in competition with the public system? Do they make it so certain people get access to a better education, and other people don't, uh, you know, sort of who goes to charter schools has flipped from who went to academies in some ways, but it creates similar questions about um, what happens when you divide an education system, um, and not everybody's in the same boat, and therefore, right, wealthy people are invested in different institutions than not wealthy people, and what does that mean for Republic,
0: you know exactly, and, and you know I can remember was it fifteen years ago there was the big charter school push uh, and the school vouchers push, and now it seems there's a lot of questions about whether or not that was a, a wise idea and whether it, it it didn't alleviate a lot of the problems they were allegedly designed to solve. And so, you know, it's very clear I think that we we have yet to arrive at a at a suitable answer as, as the best way to educate our children. Um, unfortunately, and. Uh, but hopefully, your book can help us chart a pathway towards the future.
1: Well, that would be something. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: how, you know, you teach at Norwich University in, in Vermont, and so I'm wondering how do you bring your work into the classroom? How does how does your work as a professional historian, oftentimes spending months alone in the archives, uh, uh, thinking your own thoughts? How do you? How do you bring that work and that experience
1: into the classroom for your students? One of the great, great um, things about Norwich is it was founded in 1819, so in my period, um, and we have a fantastic university archives with three professional archivists, and so I teach our department's historical methods course, which actually asks students to go in. Oh, nice. Right, so they're sophomores. I mean, I don't know about you, Jim, but I didn't do archival research until graduate school. I, I did it in my senior year of college, okay. and that was it. Yeah, yeah so we, we've got these sophomores, 19-year-olds, and we're just, we sort of, it, it's a course that teaches them how to write and how to do all these other things, but the main um, outcome is that they go into the university archives and write a research paper using the stuff, oh, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I spent a lot of time in archives of, you know, school archives. So I kind of know how to wind my way through those and can help them find things. So, so my, you know, years of just, like, immersing myself in boring school records has helped me, <laughs> you know, teach them how to do that. Uh, and so that's a pretty cool bit. Also, I mean, I worked in... Uh, before I started at Norwich, I had a two year postdoc at the New York Public Library, so I sort of worked in a library and and um, working uh, you know you learn a lot doing research, but you also mm-hmm. learn a lot when you're working on the library side, as you well know. And so it, it right. helps you to sort of demystify things for students. And so that experience too, again, like translates pretty well toward teaching these kind of uh, research skills, which I think is super important, I mean for history majors to be able to do and get that experience. So um, you're going back soon. Uh, I think you're going to
0: teach a summer course uh, to sort of decompress and, and, <laughs> and, um, and think about what's next. But do you have a sense of, of what might be on the research horizon anytime soon? Or is it, are you going to go fishing about to see what um, what interests you?
1: I've got a few ideas. My first article was about um, slavery and the debate over the ratification of the Constitution in New York. Oh, okay. And I don't think I said everything that there is to say about... Um, the peculiar way in which New York comes around mm-hmm. to the Constitution—it's the eleventh state out of, of thirteen—and it only took nine to get the Constitution ratified. So you'd think it was sort of no-brainer, but it was really touch and go there for a right. while. And that's—I mean—it's kind of dramatic and interesting story. And I think there's a lot about. Um, I mean, there's a lot of political violence in this moment, mm-hmm. and, and it's not just the kind of, you know, the old way to talk about ratification was it was a great national discussion. It's like there's a national discussion with, like, rocks and bottles and, you know, fire and arson and all this stuff, um, and uh, that there might be a story there worth telling. Um, so that's one idea. Another one I might... Uh, I've always been kind of... I'm a New Yorker, originally. Mm. Um, so... Uh, I've thought about sort of going back and and doing kind of local study of the of the revolution in a couple of New York counties um, to just sort of, and not even just the revolution, but the the age of revolutions, right? Right, right. Does is that a meaningful category for people living in you know rural areas of -hmm. of New York State? Like, how does the French Revolution you know affect right from like a just a farmer Um, and. Yeah, Do they even care? Did yeah. they even care, yeah. And uh, doing a lot of the research I did on on schools took me to a lot of local historical societies, local archives. and gave me a, a real appreciation for kind of what's there uh, source-wise. That is, um, that are great, the great, great local sources, court records, um, you know, institutional records, things like this that are just, you know, hard to get to, right? You know, small historical societies don't have research fellowships the way a place like Mount Vernon right. does, which... Um, you know, it makes sense, but it, it's unfortunate. It makes it harder to go spend, you know, a month in, like, Ulster County or something. But there's a value in that. And so my little snapshot trips to all these many libraries made me aware of some of the stuff that's there that doesn't maybe get used as much and, and could perhaps yield a kind of interesting, fine-grained local story. Um, and, you know, I've got friends and family, like, up the Hudson Valley, so could stay. Yeah, you can yeah, capture search. Yeah, while you're yeah going. exactly. Well, I think you put you, you
0: you raise an important point. Is you know historical societies often have remarkable stuff that you know sometimes you know, we're not necessarily aware of, and so it's fun to just sort of go and poke, poke in and see what's there. I think one of the best research experiences I ever had was at the Vermont Historical Society. Um, that was that was delightful, um, and I wish to go there again. Yeah, you should <laughs> come visit downtown Barry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, it was a great little place. I loved it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mark, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, Jim. This was a great time. Great. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. Our producer and sound engineer is Anthony King. Our theme music, entitled Mount Vernon, was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.